Welcome to the You on the Camino de Santiago podcast, Season 3. This podcast is for and about people getting ready for their first ever pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago in Spain, France, and Portugal. With your host, Camino guide and longtime pilgrim, Nancy Reynolds of the Camino Experience. Camino Facebook groups is called Slow Strollers on the Camino. It's for people who want to walk slowly or who want to walk short stages and ultimately take longer to complete the pilgrimage than people who walk, say, 20, 25, or 30 kilometers a day. Hi, this is Nancy, and my guest today could be president of the Slow Strollers on the Camino group. One of the things I hear regularly when working with new pilgrims is that there is an assumption that if you are using a guidebook to lead your Camino journey, then you must follow the stages in that guidebook. For example, the popular English language guidebook for the Camino Frances by the late John Brierley divides the Frances route into 33 stages. But you can divide the route up any way you want. 40 stages, 50 or more, or going the other way, 25, 28, or 30 stages. You decide based on how far you think you can and want to walk each day. Similarly, you can start anywhere you like and walk for as long as you are able or interested in walking. The stages in the Briarly Guidebook represent what many people call the entire route. But I believe that any walk on the Camino, when made with the heart of a pilgrim, can be called an entire pilgrimage. Now, the church in Santiago de Compostela does have a specific measurement or requirement for the pilgrimage that you need to meet if you want to receive the Compostela to acknowledge and register the completion of your pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago. If you are on foot or on horseback, you, or the horse, needs to walk at least the final 100 kilometers into Santiago on any route. Cyclists must complete at least the final 200 kilometers, again on any route. There is also one other requirement, according to the website of the Church in Santiago, and that is that the pilgrim must make the journey for religious or spiritual reasons, or at least in an attitude of seeking. So where am I going with all of this? Well, today's guest is going to take the slow stroller idea to an elevated level. Why? because she recognizes her own capabilities and desires and has designed a Camino experience to support them. My guest is Judith from Canada, near the city of Toronto, and she has overcome several health challenges and the doubt of her circle of friends to take this journey on the Camino. We will meet Judith in just a moment, but first, I want to give you a tip on booking accommodations for those who are planning to walk in 2024. I'll start with a tip 
for those starting in Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port on the Frances route. I know that many pilgrims are eager to start booking their beds and rooms for next year, especially those who are planning to stay at Refuge Orison or Auberge Borda, where there are a limited number of beds for the steady stream of pilgrims who make their way from Saint-Jean-Pied-du-Port each day during the walking season. Refuge Orison will close their property for the season this year on October 15th, and then they will open reservations for next year about a month later. So, if you want to stay at Orison starting when they open in April, start checking their website around November 15th. Now, the apps and guidebooks have not yet caught up to Orison's growth and they still list the number of beds as around 28 to 38, depending on the source. In fact, Orison has 46 dorm beds and three very basic double rooms. So, don't panic, you will get a bed. Auberge Borda will close their property for the season this year around October 26, and then they will open for reservations for next year again, about a month after that. So if you want to stay at Auberge Borda in 2024, start checking their website in early December. Borda has 12 dorm beds and one private room that sleeps two people with the possibility for a third person. For bookings at other places on the Camino routes, you can expect reservations for 2024 to open in January. But still, if you check, say, on Booking.com or other online sources and you don't see availability, don't panic. Some of the smaller properties won't have their inventories loaded into the booking engines that early. As you have probably heard and read, it is becoming more and more common for pilgrims to make advance reservations. Do you need to make reservations? Well, that depends on a number of factors. And then, if you do need to, how do you do it? For a full discussion on this topic for those who are walking the Frances route, I would like to direct you to my Camino Frances Getting Started audio guide. The audio guide covers how to go from the idea of walking the Camino all the way to your first steps on the trail and beyond. And it goes into great detail on how to make your pilgrimage a reality. I recently heard from one of the pilgrims who is using the audio guide to prepare for her 2024 pilgrimage. And she said, Podcasts about the Camino Frances are fun to listen to and sometimes even informative. But for the nitty gritty information, I love the details found in Nancy's audio guide. She says, I could go on and on, but the best thing for a future pilgrim to do is buy Nancy's audio guide. You won't be disappointed. Thank you, Claire, from New Zealand, for that review. To learn more and to get the guide, you can go to my website, thecaminoexperience.com, and there is a link for the guide, as well as the other things I offer first-time pilgrims, right on my homepage. Okay, how about we meet Judith and hear her inspiring story now? Here we go. 
Hi, this is Nancy. And today I am here with Judith from Ontario, Canada, about two hours away from Toronto. And I think you're really going to enjoy Judith's story. So let's go ahead and say hello. Hi, Judith. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Nancy. Thank you for having me here. When I read your request form to be a guest on the podcast, the first thing I thought was, we have to tell this story because this is this is someone who is, well, you're, I'm going to let it unfold. You'll hear why I'm so intrigued by Judith's story. So Judith, let's jump right in. And if you would do what I, of course, like to call put the pin in the map and share with us what route you're walking where you're starting, and how long you're going to take to walk the Camino. Okay, thanks. Yes. So I am walking from Saria to Santiago. So that's on the Francis route, the yeah. French route, uh, just the last 115 kilometers. And I'm starting in a few days. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it in very easy stages. Okay. Half stages. What does that mean? Well, in the Briarly book, they divided the the walk into all these stages, and it appears that people think that they need to do those that amount of mileage in a day. But for reasons that will become apparent in this interview, I, I would never be able to walk that far in a day. And so I'm doing I'm doing what I saw referred to rather contemptuously as the Kitty Camino. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> I have not heard that. But I think of it as my senior, my own seniors Camino. And, and so I'm walking between eight and I think the longest day is 14 and a half kilometers. Okay. Most days are around 10 or 12 kilometers a day. And, and if you look at the Briarly book, it's about a half stage each day. And then I'm walking five days, taking a rest day in Melide, Melide, and then walking another five days. All right. Well, so we we got to talk about this. I the Kitty Camino. I've never heard that phrase. I I feel like maybe we should just forget it and pretend it doesn't it was exist. Awful, wasn't it? <laughs> I, well, it does sound derogatory or a little it, condescending. It, it was meant in a derogatory way. It was meant that way. Yeah. But you said the seniors. So would you share with us your age? Yes, I'm seventy eight, seventy eight and a half, and um, and I am not a walker, and I am not an athlete, and I am not all that fit. So (laughs) this is going to be a challenge for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I ask you to share your age because I hear so often people are like, oh, am I too old to do this? And you find out they're in their early 60s. So the answer is no, you are not too old to do this. You are the right age to go do this. So talk to us a little bit about how how you chose these stages and these distances. Oh, well, that was pretty easy. I didn't know much about walking the Camino. I mean, I had, I had read books about the Camino. I didn't originally set off to walk a Camino. I just set off to find a long walk somewhere that I could do. And I assumed that I would find a company to book my accommodation and to pass, do the luggage transfers. And I was originally looking in England and the Yorkshire Dales, maybe or something, but they wouldn't let me do that alone. And I wanted to do it alone because I didn't have anyone to walk with. Okay. And so then, and I knew about the Camino from a number of things, including the movie The Way, but also from years ago, I don't know, somehow I came across books about it, but I had not thought of doing that myself. And I didn't know a lot about it. 
There's also a really wonderful CD. I went to the CD, uh, launch of the CD of a wonderful CD where the man walked 1,500 kilometers of the French route and with his wife and another couple. His name is Oliver Schroer, S-H-R-O-E-R, and a Toronto person. And, and he composed music and recorded it in the churches all the way along the Camino and the cowbells and the, and the sticks, the walking sticks. And beautiful album. And I went to that the launch of the CD and sadly he, he died of leukemia a couple of years later after that. So I really treasure it. At any rate, I didn't know about the Camino, but then very much about it. So I just assumed that I would book it with a company and I did. <laughs> and it wasn't until after I'd done that, that I realized that people do it on their own, but this is going to be fine for me. And they had a, it's called the natural adventure from England. And they they had this divided into these half stages. And I thought I can do that. And then I asked for an extra rest day after the 14 and a half kilometer one before the 14 kilometer walk, just in case. Those are relatively big stages then for what you're planning to do. 14. 14 and a half is the longest. And then, then I have the rest day and then I do a 14. But the rest are 10, 12. One's eight, one's nine not so bad. There are a few things that I love about your story that I want to I want to highlight for people listening. One is that even if you book with a company, you have some say in the stages that you do. You don't have to outright accept their itinerary. If you make it longer, it will cost more. If you add a rest day, if you add shorter stages, it will cost more, but you don't have to just take what they give you. No. I added two days to two nights, actually, I guess. And then I added some more on the either end that I booked myself. So I'm going to Madrid. I'm going to do three days of sightseeing. Well, I'm going to do one day of resting up from jet lag and then two days of sightseeing. And then I have a whole day to get myself to Saria on the train because I wanted to see some of the countryside. I've never been to Spain. Right. And then I have a whole day in Saria, two nights a whole day so that I can look at Saria. So I don't just want to get there at five, six o'clock the night before and then dash off. I want to see this place, you know. You are my top tip of don't rush the start. Right. And so I have a whole day. I haven't decided yet if I'm taking my walking poles or not. So if I need to, I can buy walking poles there. I can buy a few things that I don't really want to take from here. Yeah, great. Will you be checking a bag or will you do a carry-on? Oh, no, I am not a light packer. I will be checking the bag. <laughs> right there with you, sister. <laughs> and it's a and it's a real suitcase. It's not a backpack. It's yeah. a real suitcase with wheels. And it's I've got a 20 kilometer weight and I haven't yet tried to weigh it, but we'll okay. see. Some of the companies do 15 kilos, but I'll be honest, I have gone over it and they have never complained. My one trick is that I put an extra euro in the envelope for the driver. Mine are all paid for, so I don't have that, but maybe I could find a way to do that. You still could actually, because for people who book their luggage transport stage by stage by stage, they get an envelope from their host. So you could just put big word gracias on the front of the envelope and stick a euro in or Perfect. two. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. It's just, a you know, the Spain, it does not have a tipping culture. But my thinking is 
when someone is doing extra work for me that I didn't even get a chance to ask them for or thank them for, I'm going to slip in something to yeah. say thank you. Yeah. I don't think I'm ruining the culture of Spain when I do that. No. Okay. I want to go back and, and highlight a couple things. You said you're taking a suitcase instead of a backpack. And I want to emphasize that 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 is acceptable. Many of the luggage transport companies transport everything. They transport a backpack, a suitcase, a duffel bag. Yeah. Suitcase is, is definitely acceptable. I asked. They said that the courier companies prefer it's to be soft-sided rather than a hard case. Okay. Uh, just because the hard cases get more knocked up or something, but it could have wheels. Yes, definitely wheels. I've got that. Good. I use a large wheeled duffel bag, so I don't have to carry it either. And it's soft-sided and it tosses around pretty easily. Yeah, good thinking. So I want to go back to something you said about how you heard about the Camino and point out that people hear about the Camino in so many different ways, whether that's a friend or family member, whether it is from a movie or an article. Sometimes the Sunday paper has the travel section with a story about it. And it's so interesting that we hear about it from different ways, which means we come into it from from a completely different knowledge level. So you might not know what it is, which sounds like you had to do a little bit of research and discovery. I knew that it was a religious pilgrimage. I don't remember how I first heard about it. It was, it was at least before 2006 because I went to that CD opening. I think I had read a book or two about people doing it because I'm really fascinated by long walks. I've always mm. wanted to do a long walk, right? And I would joke that I wanted to walk the Appalachian Trail, but I never walked around the block. <laughs> um, but I really, looking back on it, I don't want to walk the Appalachian Trail and carry all my food and do all that. That's a little intense. That's too much. That's real hiking, and I don't want to do that. So I knew about it. I don't know how I knew about it. What I didn't realize was that you didn't need to book with someone, you, that you could that there were services that you could have your luggage sent on all by yourself and you mm -hmm. could find ways to do the bookings and so on. But this made it very easy. And yeah. the truth is that I, I could afford to do that. And I think that's one thing that people do miss is that there are so many different ways to do it. You can do it yourself. And that's actually, I just launched a program called DIY Plus for people who want to do it themselves. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's for people who say, you know what, I, I maybe don't have the budget for that, or maybe I don't see the value in having somebody else book my accommodations for me, but I want them booked. I don't want to go without reservations. So it's the whole continuum, the company, the nature, natural yeah. adventure, let's give them a plug. And I'll put a link for them in the notes so people can look into them. There are so many companies now yes. that'll do it for you. Yeah. I'll also put a link for my do-it-yourself plus program. The plus is webinars, monthly webinars with me, oh, good. which are going to be really fun. But yeah, so you are absolutely right. People hear about it in different ways. They get different knowledge level and they figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I chose it originally just because... It was a walk, not a hike, and I was going to be allowed to do it alone. The company I booked with would allow me to do it alone. But 
then it's turned into more than that because of what's happened in the last year or so. Will you share what's happened for you in the last year? I will. So I had geared myself up to doing this. Well, first, can I tell the story of how come I decided I was really going to do it? Yes, we want to know why and how. We want everything. I always wanted to do this, but I'm not really fit. I've, I've got a bunch of friends, a big group of friends, about 10 or 12 of us, 15 of us, who I met at exercise classes at a local university at the health club there. And we've morphed into a group of friends, really good supportive friends. And we were out for lunch one day about a year ago. And they, these people, a lot of them walk. And they walk every day. And they, they walk maybe faster than I do. I'm under five feet tall. I don't take very long strides. I walk really slowly. And I huff and I puff and I get all red-faced. And they think I'm dying. You know, it's, I'm just so not athletic. But we were out for lunch one day and I was talking about, we were talking about what we're going to do now that the pandemic is getting over. And I said, I've always wanted to do this really long walk. And one of my friends said, well, that's never going to happen. And I thought, we will just see about that. Except I had a swear word or two in there. Throw down the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. And I started training. I started doing longer walks. And that was in July of 2022. And by mid-July, I had, I remember one day when I, we've got a nice trail here and I just set out from the house and I walked down the trail near my house and then across to another trail. And, and then I called my partner when I thought I was done. I didn't, couldn't go any further. And I had walked 12 kilometers in three hours, wow. which seemed pretty good to me. That's a four kilometer an hour clip. It was. And I can't do that now because about two weeks after that, I developed peripheral neuropathy in my legs and in my hands and across my back. I don't even know what you call it. But basically, for people who don't know, my legs went numb, my feet went numb, my, except for pins and needles. My hands went numb, except for pins and needles. I couldn't open a bottle. I couldn't, I burned myself because I couldn't feel things. My balance was really off. I couldn't balance. I tried walking around the block and it hurt too much from the pins and needles and my feet. Plus, having wonky balance. I was using a cane. I, I still went to line dancing classes, which is something I do and love, but I used a cane. Hang on. Did you say you do line dancing? Line dancing, yes. Not country line dancing, international line dancing. It's way more exciting. I don't even know what that is, but I want everyone to just picture. Did everybody remember that this woman is 78 years old? She's line dancing and she's going to go walk the Camino. So don't. I, I want no excuses from anybody as to why they can't walk the Camino. Especially since I'm not athletic. I took great heart in your podcast where you talked about not having trained as much as one should, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, let's go back to your story. I can't walk that far anymore, that fast anymore. I'm, I'm down to now maybe 17 or 18 minutes, kilometers, so a little better between three and four. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm going to be much slower than that on the Camino because of the hills. And because I want to stop and see things and I've got to change my socks and I have to, you know, stop at a cafe and I have to take pictures. So it's going to be much smaller. But that's all I have to do in a day. So that's good. That's right. That is such a key point that you have from from morning to night to cover the distance that you plan to walk. Of course, you want to plan for meals. You want to know that you'll be someplace where you can get food. And if you're running late, you want to let your accommodations know you're still coming but yeah, I think we forget that we have the whole day to walk those distances. Right. 
So I had given up the idea of walking because I couldn't walk. Mm. And then at the end of March this year, so that was from July of last year, the end of March this year, 2023, the end of March, all of a sudden within one week, all those symptoms went away. They just miraculously went away. Now, the MRIs I had said perhaps a couple of nerves and at the top of my neck were a bit impinged. So it's possible that I had some kind of a blockage there. And I had been doing weekly fascial stretch sessions where I lay on a table like a lump of dough and this person moves me around and, you know, gets parts of me moving that haven't moved for a while. But also the neurologist said that it might have been stress. And certainly I'd had a great deal of stress. We had the pandemic and my partner was quite ill for nine months, causing us to have to cancel a big five month trip. And then, you know, once in a lifetime trip. And then I had... Um, a blood disorder. And I had to wait a few months to see if that was cancer or not. I was hoping that since I had to wait a few months, it wasn't, and it wasn't. So stressful. And so uh, there was stress. So that all went away. And so I immediately thought, well, then, I mean, if not now, when? Yes. Now I'm going to do it. And so I can't walk as fast, but now there's an added, I'm really glad that I had chosen a Camino to do the the religious part of it, because now I've also, I'm walking in, in gratitude and thankfulness. So it added another dimension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have a lot to be thankful for. Absolutely. And you've got quite a lot of life in you. You, you've got, you got kilometers to walk. (laughs) I do. And my partner is not sure I can actually do it. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's talk about your partner. What's that about? Okay. So I I grew up in this town that I live in, and I, I was born in Toronto, but we moved here when I was four. I, I grew up here. Um, in high school, I met this guy. I went out with this guy, and then I went off to university, and I broke up with him when I went to university, likely be, because in those days, that was in the early 1960s, and it was not that easy to have a long-distance relationship, and I was going to another city, and and also, there were going to be lots of guys at university, and I wanted to date, you know, and all that. So I did that. I guess I broke his heart, actually. But but we went on to have separate lives, and and I I married many years later. I didn't marry till my mid thirties. I had to kiss a lot of frogs to find the prince, you know, another prince, and I did that. And then and I married, and then my husband died suddenly of a heart attack in two thousand and five. And about three years later, my high school boyfriend found me on Facebook. And that I wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. But anyway, we we connected. We emailed and stuff. And the sparks were still there. And uh, in 2010, we became a couple. And we've been a couple ever since. And so there we go. Oh, are. how wonderful. I love these love stories. It is. Yeah. Now, so... Where does he stand on your ability to walk the Camino? Well, so he's very supportive of my going and doing it. And he's, I think I could say he's hopeful, but he's very concerned that I will not be able to. So he tells me that at work, he was known as Dr. Doom because he could always see everything that could go wrong with a given project. Oh, fabulous. Let's talk he to him. See everything that could go wrong with this endeavor of mine. And he's just really concerned because he loves me. 
but all that does is make me say, make me even more determined to prove him wrong. You know? Yes, let's go do it. He doesn't actually say, I think you're not going to be. Able, but he says, you know, look, given your age, given, you know, that you're not athletic, you've never really walked. He said, I, you showed me those videos of people on YouTube and they're all in their 30s. And at the end of a day of walking, they're like stretched out in the bed, completely spent. How are you going to do it? And I said, well, A, they walk double the amount I'm going to walk. And B, I don't know, but I should be able to do it. <laughs> you know, you just said the wisest thing I have heard in months. I don't know. You don't know until you get there and until you take your first steps and until you see what the trail is like and until you feel what it is to be on the trail, you don't know. No, I don't. And what I would like to remind you you and everyone is that you have done hard things before in your life. You've done challenging things in your life absolutely, and you've figured out how to do it. You figured out how to overcome problems. I have said many times that after walking the Camino, I felt like I had just done a masterclass in problem solving. Mm. And so that is a finely tuned skill now. And it's not just, it's actually a thought process to go through, okay, what's happening? What do I need? How do I get what I need? What do I need to do differently? What's actually happening? Is there a threat? Is there a danger? Am I okay? And you go through this process and you solve those problems. I have, um, this sounds like a non sequitur, but it's not. I have two stepdaughters whom I love very much and with whom I'm very close. One of them the other day was visiting and, and was asking me, so uh, because she wanted to re reassure Gord a little bit. So what is your backup plan, Judy? What is your backup plan? And I said, you know what? There are cafes and I can go in and I can ask for them to call me a cab if I absolutely can't walk. So I said, you know, I don't see how, how I could fail short of some kind of medical emergency. Really. I mean, I may not get to Compostela, but I'm going to get to Santiago. But you're going to do it. You're going to walk the Camino. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is Saria de Santiago is a fairly busy stretch of the Camino, which means there are always other pilgrims coming behind you. Yeah. And so if you have a problem, if you need help, you have people to ask for help. And there's something inherent in the pilgrim community that we help each other. We look out for each other. Yes. So, yeah. So, and how many pilgrims, who walks the Camino without a smartphone these days? Very few people. And so anyone who comes along is going to be able to call for help for you. Yes. And I have a, a number to call too for the contact from the company, you know, the, the local contact. Great. I'm not really worried about it. I think it'll be fine. I'm excited. Very good. Now, you mentioned trekking poles. And have you trained with trekking poles? Have you used them at home? Yes. So uh, years ago, when before the pandemic, one of the things that this group of people that exercised at the university used to do was we walked with poles a couple of times a week. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of us got to know each other, because as we walked, we would talk, you know, as opposed to being in an exercise class or in the pool or something. And so I used them. So I didn't have my own set, though. And then when my balance went, I, because of all this neuropathy, I bought a set thinking, well, I could use those. But then in, I 
wasn't walking well enough or fast enough to do that. I ended up with a cane. So yes, and I have watched videos on how to use them properly and discovered that they didn't teach us how to use them properly when we took them at the class. And so I've been training with them and with the pack, the pack on my back and so on. And yeah, I, I really like them. You know, you said you you have learned how to use them properly. And I find that there's a continuum of properly when it comes to using trekking poles on the Camino. A lot of people, let's see, how do I say this? There are a lot of opinions about how to use trekking poles and a lot of different ways that you can use them. And one of the things that I always suggest is to try out some different suggestions and see what works for you. One of the things I see a lot of is people who set their trekking poles uh, what I think would be too high, which is the instructions from often from the pole manufacturer say that you're uh, for flat surfaces, your arm should be at a 90 degree angle. Yes. And in my opinion and experience, that's actually a little bit too high. And the reason is when you're walking on flat surfaces, you then have to lift your arms that much every mm -hmm. step. But if you lower the poles just a little bit, just a, a couple inches even, or a few centimeters, then with your natural stride, you don't have to lift the poles with every step. Oh, that makes sense. Uses up a little bit less energy. Yes, because I was taught 90 degrees, certainly. And then I saw that in videos. Yes. But so it's interesting to lower them. A lot of people say that now. If you're going out for a, an hour hike or a two-hour hike on a Saturday, it doesn't matter. But when you're walking 15, 20, 30 kilometers day after day after day, yeah. I would like to have less energy going to moving my poles and more energy going to covering the territory. Now, the other thing that people, that there's a debate on is how to use the straps. And so I'm going to put a link in the show notes for this episode from someone who I learned all about trekking poles with. It's a gal out in California who has been an expert on this for probably decades. And she shares how to use the straps so that you get the benefit from them. So they're not just decorative. So I will put that in. So there are two people who I really like. One is Camino related. One is not Camino related. The first one, her, her name, I might say her name wrong. So forgive me if you're listening, Jaya Faye Paley, and her handle is Adventure Buddies. And then the other one is a Camino gal who is this wonderful, sprightly, full of energy, blue hair. She goes under the Perpetual Pilgrim. Yeah. And so I totally dig the way she does it. So I'm going to put, I'll put both links in the show notes so people can find that. And then in terms of trekking poles, if you decide to to leave yours at home and buy a set. I may have mentioned this on a past episode. There's a shop in Saria called Peregrinoteca. And one of the noteworthy landmarks in Saria is this giant staircase that takes you up to the Rua Mayor, which is the main street. It's a pedestrian street that goes, that's that the Camino goes on. And there's a giant staircase that takes you up to that. And the Peregrino take a store is at the base of that staircase. And they sell everything a pilgrim needs. And a bunch of stuff you don't need. 
Yeah, because I, I I'm not planning to take a knife and fork or anything. I thought they'd have that kind of stuff. I don't want to risk losing one from the set from home, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that one. Yeah, cool. So another thing that you mentioned a little while ago that I just want to comment on just to sort of share some current information about how things work that hopefully will be helpful for you and also for my listeners. You mentioned that you're taking the train from Madrid to Saria. Yes. Something that happens on that line, which I don't know how frequently, but I heard of it recently, so I want to mention it. And that is that when they do work on the line, they actually can't run the train. And so what they do is they take all the train passengers and put you on one of their buses. And the buses then take you from station to station. And for the most part, what I've been hearing is that from Orense to Saria, you will be on a bus. And so I mentioned that one, just so that there's no surprise, because if you get there and they start moving people in Spanish and you're like, what? You might want to know that that's supposed to happen if they say, come on, get on the bus. The other thing is the question about the timetable. When they set the times for these journeys, they set it for the bus travel included. So they know that it's going to take some time to get off the train and get everybody onto the bus and then drive instead of take the train. So the timetables turn out to be fairly reliable if the train departs on time from your origin point. Let's talk about any frustrations or challenges that you've had besides that physical part that we've already talked about. Any other frustrations or challenges in getting ready for your Camino? Yes, there have been. One was that I had decided to go alone. And then I was talking to a friend doing a video call with uh, someone I know, but haven't seen much in person, but we've done lots and lots and lots of video calls. I've only seen her a couple of times in real life. And she said, oh, she would really like to do that. And she's quite fit. And I thought, well, that would, that would be fine. You know, yes, okay, good. But we'll have separate rooms and I'm walking my own pace. I'm not, I am not speeding up for anybody, but you can walk faster or whatever. And that was good. But then it started getting more complex because I ended up having a gallbladder attack of all things. And then, so now I have to you know, watch what I eat. I can't eat French fries. Oh dear. Uh-oh. I know it's going to be a problem. So then her husband was concerned that I would have to leave in the middle. So he wanted to come. And so that, okay. But he would, he, he would walk a different, you know, half a mile behind us or something. Anyway, it was getting complex. And then it got complex for them because the company couldn't, book us at the dates we originally asked for and later dates were pushing them they leave their snowbirds and they leave at the end of October for six months out of the country and it was going to be too much and it all just got a little bit hectic and stressful for them and so they said no we can't do it how be we do it next year and I said no no way man no way this is my year I have to do it this year so I said you can cheer me on this year and I'll cheer you on. You can do it next year. So that's how we left it. And that's what's happening. They were very helpful to me. It was very helpful to have somebody else planning and doing, trying to do the original figuring out of logistics and things with, but then in the end, it ended up, I think being easier for me to then plan the whole thing myself without having to consult anyone. So that was one. It didn't ever get to be unpleasant or anything. It was just, there was a bit of um, stress around how was this going to work out for all of us. 
that is an interesting point that when you are going to plan your Camino with someone else, there definitely are pros and cons to have that sounding board and to be able to talk about what about this? How does that sound? What have you read? And then to know that somewhere in the middle of it, you still have to find your own Camino. It still has to be your journey, even if you're sharing it with someone. I feel like in some ways it worked out in the best of all possible ways because I had that extra support while we figured things out. It was her husband, for instance, when we were trying to figure out how to get to, we were trying to figure out how to fly from Toronto to Santiago somehow. He said, why don't you fly to Madrid? Yeah. That was easy. Now we got a direct flight, you know? There we go. That's actually a really good point. Yeah. When people start in Saria, they think, well, let me get to the closest airport, which geographically is Santiago. But that doesn't mean it's the easiest to get to. I'd like to make this point. When I coach people on their travel itineraries, one of the things I suggest is to don't just book a flight and trust that you'll be able to get from an airport to your starting point. Make sure that you check the trains, buses, and connecting flights at the same time before you book your big flight. Yeah. Yeah, we did all all that. And and that's why I have to stay a night in Madrid, you know? It's not a hardship. No, no, it won't be. <laughs> so I'm staying three nights. It's good. The second thing, and I only thought about this in preparing for, for today, is that, so, you know, I live in Ontario. We get winter for a lot of months. Mm-hmm. And during winter, most of us don't make travel plans. We don't zip into Toronto to see our friends too often, or we don't, I don't go to Ottawa to see my grandkids, except maybe at Christmas. We just basically, because the weather is so unpredictable, you hibernate. And so that means that I have the spring and summer and fall to see everyone. And last year, I wasn't able to do that because of being ill. I couldn't just go zipping around. I was too busy with medical appointments and I wasn't well enough. And so this year, I've been training. And so I haven't had the time that I was hoping to have originally before this idea came out to see friends and family. So between the pandemic and then Gord being sick and then me being ill, it's been several years since I've seen some people who only live two or three hours away, family and friends. And now I couldn't do it this year because I was so busy training. By the time I get back, it will be the middle of October. And then we leave, uh, we leave at the in the middle of November to go down to Honduras for a couple of weeks to do some charity work at an orphanage. And so I just won't get to see them until the spring or the next summer. So there's been a bit of a sacrifice in that respect. Hasn't been an awful challenge, but it's clear that I've had to prioritize. That is such a good point. And it's something that we, we don't really think about that in order to walk the Camino, in order to take yourself out of your life for any certain amount of time, you do have to give up some of those things. And you always want to check the calendar before you make your commitment to go walk the Camino to make sure you're not missing out on any of your A priorities, like a partner's birthday or a wedding of someone in your family or something important to you. And that's another really key component is that if you're training and you're serious about training, that takes some time out of your schedule for sure. It does. And I haven't trained as much as I wanted because I still line dance and I'm still seeing my friends and so on. On the other hand, I I did do a lot more than I've ever done. 
Mm. You know, three days of 12 kilometers a day. That's amazing. Three days in a row. I did that. I want to see a show of hands for my listeners right now. How many people could go out and walk three 12 kilometer days in a row right now? Do you see any hands? I don't see any hands. You know, the whole conversation reminds me of that question of, can you have it all? Is it possible to have it all? Well, yes, you can have it all, just not at the same time. Right. And then there's only one third complication, and it's sort of minor, and that is that because I had this gallbladder attack, my travel and trip cancellation insurance will not cover that because it happened within a three-month, you know, it's not within the six-month stability period. Yeah. And so I've had to say, well, am I going to not go because of that? And I found out that the risk of having another gallbladder attack within one year is something like 29%. And I decided that I would be very upset if I stayed home and didn't have an attack. So I'm going. Fabulous. My late husband and I lived in France, in the south of France for a couple of years at one point. And the medical systems over there are really good. Mm-hmm. I don't have any worries in that score about about the medical systems or their affordability if you really even do get get ill. I would never take that risk in the United States. <laughs> and that brings up a good point is, is to make sure you do have travel insurance or trip insurance if you've put money out and read the fine print because you do need to know if your particular risk is covered and only then can you make an intelligent decision about whether it's the right move for you. Absolutely. I don't book anything now without being able to cancel because I learned from that five-month trip we had booked and we had $40,000 that needed to come back. And some of it came back instantly and some of it took a year to come back, but we eventually got it all. Yeah. Read the fine print. It's really good advice. Mm -hmm. Let me ask, do you have any questions that I can answer for you? Yes, I do. I have two questions and they're both sort of technical, one on real technology. So I, I have a phone, you know, a smartphone, and I read about how SIM cards, these orange SIM cards are a good thing to have. And I phoned my phone company and they said that my phone is actually unlocked. It doesn't need to be locked. And I signed up for their plan. Canadians pay the highest mobile rates in the world. And they want 16 Canadian dollars a day for every day that I use any data or that I get a text or that some scammer calls me as happened earlier today telling me that I'm going to go to jail because I didn't pay my taxes and I should send Apple cards to somewhere. You know. And you don't want to pay 16 Canadian dollars just to hear that. I do not. But on the other hand, I could pay $16 a day if I needed to. And that would seem to me to be the easy way. And at my age, I'm all for easy. Here's my question. If I get a SIM card, I don't really understand what happens. If I get a SIM card and I and somehow they figure out how to take the old one out of my phone and put another one in because I don't know how to do that, do all my contacts disappear? I know I have a different phone number and that's a bit of an issue because what if someone's trying to get hold of me? It gets a little complex. And the question is, are the contacts tied to the SIM card or are the contacts tied to the physical phone itself? And I'm going to take the sort of the about way on this and say, I would ask your phone provider. I asked and they said, it depends whether they're on the SIM card or whether they're in the phone itself. If you take a, the SIM card out and put another one in, the 
if they're on the SIM card, they stay on the SIM card. They won't go away. They just won't, you won't have access to them right then. I should probably do a session with some tech expert to talk us through all these, all these different options. What I do know is that it's very easy to switch out the SIM card. It's very easy to put in a Spanish SIM card for the time you'll be there. It'll cost you about 15 euros, maybe 20 euros. And you then have the ability to do everything on that phone that you did on your phone. But the question I always want to start with is what do you think you'll need to do with your phone while you're there? Okay, so I've got Gord on WhatsApp. And so I plan to talk to him by video on WhatsApp at the end of each day, just so he knows that I'm alive and safe and wherever. I want to post on Facebook some photos, you know, and a little update so that my friends and family can see what's happening. But I think I can do all of that on Wi-Fi at night from the hotel, and then that wouldn't be an issue. Other than that, I think it would be a matter of needing to phone somewhere, you know, to phone for a taxi or to phone uh, the company that, you know, the local contact or, I don't know, to phone ahead to my hotel to say I'm going to be a little late or something of that sort. And maybe to look something up on Google now and again. But, I mean, I'd love to be listening to podcasts, but I think I can download those. And I think when I'm walking, I don't want to listen to podcasts too much. So I think I could likely do the whole thing just on Wi-Fi. I'm really more worried about these stray calls from people wanting me to buy duct cleaning services or whatever that I can't get rid of. But I thought if I maybe if I put my phone on airplane mode, those can't get through. That's the solution. And then I could just use this $16 thing, not worry about the SIM card or the contacts or anything. And use my Wi-Fi whenever possible. And if I get the odd $16 charge, oh, well. Yes. If you're looking for easy, the easy way is to put your phone into airplane mode and turn on Wi-Fi when it's available. Right. Turn it off when you're out in the wilderness on, on the trail because it will drain your battery if it's searching and can't find Wi-Fi. Right. So just keep that in airplane mode. When you get someplace with Wi-Fi, turn that on. And then if you get into a situation where you need to call for help or call for call your company, those can be the days that you turn it on. And it probably won't be every day. The other thing to keep in mind is that the local people are really quite helpful. If you need a taxi, one of the easiest ways to get a taxi is to go into the next bar and ask the person behind the bar if they would be willing to call you a taxi. And oftentimes they are. The other thing is if you need to confirm your accommodations, it's also very possible that the place you're staying tonight would be willing to call the place that you're staying tomorrow night to make that confirmation and let them know you're arriving late or whatever. For your situation, and that's why I ask what you'll need to use it for, you're going to use it mostly on Wi-Fi. I think so. The only word of caution I would have is anytime using public Wi-Fi, Savvy Traveler Wisdom says, don't enter any passwords when on public Wi-Fi. Right. So make sure you're signed in already when you're using your data connection. For example, my, my smartphone, Facebook is always signed in. My email address, account's always signed in. WhatsApp, always signed in. Rather than have to log in, and I wouldn't do my banking on public Wi-Fi. 
So that was one question. Then I had one other question, although I, it's getting less because I'm so close to going now that I can see the weather reports. And that is about rain. So the, my one concern, barring twisting my ankle or something, but my one actual concern is I, I'm really a fair weather walker because <laughs> I'm not much of a walker at all. And if I got days and days and days of torrential downpour, I'm not, everything's been booked. I'm not in a situation where I can just say, oh gosh, I guess I'll just sit here and wait it out, which I would do if I were doing it in a more impromptu way. So I have a rain jacket, a really good rain jacket. I have a rain cover for my backpack. I also have a poncho. I don't know if it would cover, it's just a regular poncho. I don't know if that it would cover a backpack, but it would do something. I have it. I had it already. But I do not have waterproof shoes. Okay. Saga about that is that I bought a pair of Merrill trail shoes and I wore them. I came home and I wore them for like 20 minutes and we don't have return policies like that, but there was not a mark on them. And I took them back and they took them back because I knew after 20 minutes, I was not going to be able to walk in these. I don't like shoes and socks anyway. I'd never wear socks. I wear knee, pantyhose knee highs. I do not wear socks in the summer. I just wear flip-flops and things and walking sandals. I've got a great pair of Tiva walking sandals that I can walk miles in and I never have any problems. And I know people who have walked the trail, a man who's done three Caminos in walking sandals. Sure. But I did go out and buy a pair of Hoka trail. Hokas. Yeah. Hokas. Yes. Great big galump thing. I take a size five. So I bought a size six and they make me look like my feet are enormous boats it's terrible to my vanity oh, God, you're killing me <laughs> you're talking to someone with size 10 feet so i'm like five that's so sweet <laughs> oh and by the way i have arrows painted on my toenails all right i'm not worried about you getting lost then no so my concern is you know i don't mind if it rains for an hour or two or something but and i'm scared of lightning i don't want to be in thunderstorms I want to be safe. So what do you think? Like, do, you, do I really need waterproof shoes? There are people on both sides of this fence. I know you wear them. I do wear waterproof boots most of the time, which I am shifting on a little bit. I'm going to do some experimenting with non-waterproof boots. The thing about torrential rain is your feet are going to get wet regardless of what you're wearing because the water comes in through the top of the shoes. Mm. If your feet get wet, if your shoes get soaked, one of the tricks is to ball up some newspaper and stick it inside. It'll soak up the water so they're dry by morning. So it's kind of the thing, it's really a coin toss. And then you see what happens. Well, I figure there are stores there if I really have to go and buy something. Yeah, I think at this stage, it since you're leaving so soon, is to just go with what you have. Maybe take those sandals with you if it's not too cold to wear sandals. I'm taking the sandals absolutely because because I know I can walk in those with no issues whatsoever. Okay. I don't have to worry about hot sweaty feet. The only issue I've ever found is that if my feet are wet, one time I had to walk down a hill in kind of dew and I didn't have my walking poles with me. I had to take my sandals off and go down barefoot because my my feet were sliding in the sandals. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it's one of those things you'll you'll find out. But I don't have any other questions because I found your podcast really helpful. Oh, good. And the Facebook groups have been really helpful. I mean, sometimes 
too helpful. Sometimes I think maybe I know too much about this. I know more <laughs> than I want to know. I don't. The first time I ever flew in an airplane, I, I was an adult and it didn't feel strange because I'd seen so many movies of people flying in airplanes, you know? You want to retain some of the mystery? Yes. Yeah, good. So how about to wrap this up? I'd like you to imagine you're in Santiago de Compostela. You've just walked in after your 10-day journey. What are you thinking and feeling? Hmm. I've thought about this question because I hear you ask it of other people. And I honestly don't know. I have heard people say they felt you know, sad because it was over and they felt a letdown because no one was there welcoming them with open arms. It was just another another day, another pilgrim, oh well. And yet other people are jubilant at having finished. I don't know what I'm going to feel. I'm just open to whatever I'm going to feel, mm. you know. It's a good way to go. Starting off, I can imagine that I'll feel a certain apprehension and a certain excitement and adrenaline, I think that's going to be the happy moment. So I always love the beginnings of projects because they're clean and fresh and new and they're going to be perfect. And at the end, they're often not quite what you thought. And, you know, so there are mixed feelings. Yeah, there's a risk of a letdown, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that beginning, I'm with you. I love the beginnings of new things and new projects. That's why I work with pilgrims at the beginning rather than at the end. Although, I'm starting to work with pilgrims at the end as well, but I can see that. Well, then we are just going to have to wait and see. And when you come back, maybe you'll join me again on the podcast and we can hear your story. That would be wonderful. I would love that. That would be great. All right. Well, Judith, let's just go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. As I said at the beginning, I think your story is going to inspire people to get out there and just set aside any of those reasons or excuses for not walking the Camino and not planning that trip now. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. All right. 